Hallelujah. Father, we bless your name. We magnify you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your word, Father, that always shows us the way. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Ghost that's here in us and among us. We thank you, Father, that that which you desire to take place in us and through us shall be done today in this service. I thank you for utterance in the Holy Ghost, and I thank you for boldness to speak the truth in love. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name for all that you've done for us. And we love you. We magnify your name. And we dedicate ourselves to serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to a couple openings of Scripture with me this morning. Romans chapter 10 and Mark chapter 11. I want to start in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Well, back up to verse 8, I guess. Paul said, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth Confession is made unto salvation. Then Mark chapter 11, Jesus giving us what I believe is the most concise description and explanation of the operation of faith. Said in verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God, which we would have to understand means the God kind of faith. He says, have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Now notice in both of these passages of scripture, Romans chapter 10 and Mark chapter 11, it talks about believing with the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here he said, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. If he's talking about doubting in your heart, then he's got to be talking about believing in your heart too, doesn't he? But shall believe in his heart, we we might add. Believe in his heart, those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. What does believing with the heart really mean? What does believing with the heart really mean? Now, Jesus told us, or told them and gave a record to us, that believing with the heart is the key to operating in your authority here on the earth. By that, I mean for your words to come to pass. He told, Paul told us by the Holy Ghost in Romans chapter 10, that it was with the heart that we believe unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, which certainly shows us that it's the operation of the heart, faith of the heart, that brings about salvation and everything else that it entails. All of the things that Jesus bought and paid for us with his precious blood. So what does it mean to doubt, to doubt with the heart? What does it mean to believe with the heart? What's he talking about the heart? I want you to look with me over to Romans chapter 2. Because the Bible gives us several examples and explanations of what it really means to believe with a heart. I'm going to say something that uh, 
Well, forgive me for being, for focusing on the obvious, I guess. But I want you to understand something. If Jesus did anything for us, and, and what Jesus did for us is thought of differently by a lot of different people. There's a segment of the church that thinks Jesus just died for us to forgive our sins, and that's it. Everything else we get or everything else we benefit uh, by his sacrifice will come to us in heaven. There are others of us that believe that everything Jesus bought and paid for is ours now, and that we can access it here on this earth. I guess the difference in those two is some people are waiting for eternal life to benefit them in heaven, and others of us believe that eternal life is ours now and all the things that it entails. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul gives us an explanation of what it means to believe with the heart. Now, as I said, people think that, that, uh, that salvation means different things, thinks that uh, different things belong to us depending on what group you happen to be a part of. But I think we would all understand, have to accept and understand that if it's believing with the heart that gets you either the minimum level of salvation, meaning just forgiveness of sins, or the maximum benefit of everything the Bible says Jesus did for us. If it comes to believing with the heart, then God does not want us in the dark about what that is. Wouldn't you agree? If it comes to us by believing in the heart, then the Bible has to give us a clear and concise definition of what that means. Or else Jesus died in vain. He paid a price for those of us. He paid a price for us, but we'll never know how to access it. Well, I don't believe that's the way God works. Do you? The Bible said God wants everybody to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that means, would have to mean, that he wants you to know how to believe with the heart. Because that's the only way you can access what he wants you to have. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul said, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Now notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, Jews aren't limited to bloodline anymore. He's saying being a Jew under the new covenant, and he's writing to Gentiles to tell them how to access the things that God has provided for them. He says this, being a Jew is not about being born as a literal descendant of Abraham, but it's an attitude and a position of your heart. You ever had the devil tell you that certain promises were just for the Jews? He's right. But if you believe in Jesus, you're a Jew. That's what Paul's saying. So don't let the devil talk you out of what belongs to you by saying it only belongs to the Jews, meaning the nation of Israel. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. And not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. He's identifying what the heart is. He's saying the way you become a child of God is by an action of your heart. An action of your spirit. So if he's going to interchange those terms. Then we would have to understand that the same letter that he wrote to the Romans. I mean just six. What is this chapter two eight. Math will start working here in a minute. Eight chapters later. When he talks about believing in the heart, he's got to be talking about the same thing he meant in Romans 2, didn't he? 
So he's talking about with the spirit man believes. With the spirit man believes. Faith in the heart is believing in your spirit. Now the Bible tells us, Paul uses the term inward man versus outward man. To distinguish between our flesh, our bodies and our spirit. Peter uses the term hidden man of the heart. He's saying there's somebody on the inside. Now we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23, Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost the three-part makeup of man. He said, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is a spirit. By definition, he would have to be because we know that God is a spirit. And man's made in the image of God. So if God is a spirit, man has to be made in the, uh, in the same manner as a spirit being. We know that man has a soul, which is defined in the scripture as the mind, the will, and the emotions. And he lives in a body. This outward man is not the real you. People sometimes ask, well, we know each other in heaven. But do you know each other now? You'll still be you in heaven. That's deep, isn't it? You will still be you in heaven. In the Old Testament, God spoke through Ezekiel the prophet. Let me read to you verses 25 and 26 out of Ezekiel 36. He said, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice that verse 27. He said, I'll put my spirit in you. You remember there was a time in in, uh, Jesus' earthly ministry where he was explaining to his disciples spiritual things. And he was using natural terms and natural examples to show them the truth. And he said something about wine and wineskins. You remember what he said? He said, nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. Because the the skins will burst and the wine will be spilled. Well, that's a spiritual reference or an example of the things that happen to us in spirit when we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Notice the first thing is he puts a new heart or a new spirit in you. And then he puts his spirit in your spirit. In other words, you'd have to be born again to experience the presence of God in any manner whatsoever. Moses in the Old Testament asked to see the face of God. God said, you can't look upon my face and live. So he made a way for God, for Moses to see God as he passed by. He put him in the cleft of the rock. He put his hand over his, uh, his being to protect him. But as he walked by, God said he would be able to look on his back. That's an indication to us of the value, the true value of being born again. Now, when I was born again, I'm sure the same thing is true for you when you were. We may have been aware or conscious of a change that took place, but we didn't know exactly what that change was. I don't think anybody's ever been born again and really knew what it was going to do before they got it. I don't think that's possible, but I might be wrong on that. 
I think it's certainly the case for the majority of us, though. We may know of a change that takes place, but we didn't know what that change was. But the Bible says that that change was that we, the real person on the inside, was recreated instantly, recreated, and the Spirit of God was placed within us. And except that our spirits had been changed and made new, the Spirit of God could not come within us. We'd have been destroyed by the attempt. Paul wrote to the Hebrews. I believe it was Paul that was the author of the book of Hebrews. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to us that we've come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, not the place of the law, but the place of the new covenant. Mount Zion is where we've come to unto an innumerable company of angels and to the spirits of just men made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. That's you. When you accept Jesus into your heart, you are made a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. And the Spirit of God was placed within you because you were made complete. That's what the word perfect means that Paul uses over in Hebrews. The spirits have just been made perfect or made complete. There's not one thing lacking in you or me. Now, the people that know us may disagree. Or we may not be living up to what we have. But there's not one thing missing. Not one. So many times the things I think most of us pray for, or most Christians pray for at least, are things that we already have access to if we just believe with the heart. People pray for more power. You don't need more power. You need to access the power you have. It would be blasphemy to say that God hadn't given us enough power when the Bible says that we, uh, our spirits have been made perfect. That's you. You've got everything you need. So many times people are looking for something to come from heaven, a revival to start from heaven. Revivals don't start in heaven. Revivals start here. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I'm looking for a Holy Ghost outpouring like in the book of Acts. Well, we've already had one of those and he's still poured out. Nothing's changed. So a revival would have to start in us. If the church world understood that, that'd change a lot of things, wouldn't it? So we see that our spirits have been made new. We see that our spirits have been born again because we believe with the heart. Now, clearly the heart, the word heart cannot be talking about the organ in your body that pumps blood. You couldn't believe with the physical heart, the organ called the heart in the middle of your being. You couldn't believe with your heart any more than you could believe with your nose. So he's got to be talking about something else. Look over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter's giving instructions to the wives. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands. That's verse 1 of 1 Peter 3. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. The word conversation does not mean speech. 
It means manner of life. So he's telling women that are married to unsaved husbands, which you would understand would be a, um, a big deal back in the days, the early days of the church. Because nobody knew anything about God. Nobody knew anything about being saved. And so people married for whatever reasons, whatever natural reasons they married, and then one, either the husband or the wife, Paul indicates, uh, Peter indicates this, mostly the wives, usually the wives first. They'd get saved and their husbands wouldn't be. So that would create a real issue, a real problem. Now the instruction to us in this present day in the church age is different. The instruction to the, to the wives and the husbands is totally different. It's not like go marry whatever, whoever you want to and let's hope for the best. The Bible says be not unequally yoked. And that's the first thing that that's speaking to is spiritually. You and I shouldn't be hooked up with people that are in a different spiritual position than ourselves. Somebody coined the term missionary dating. Dating an unsaved person hoping to get them saved. Good luck with that. It's certainly not what the Bible instructs. So he's giving wives instruction. Paul or Peter is giving wives instructions by the Holy Ghost of how to win unsaved husbands, unsaved loved ones. And he says it should be through their manner of life, the way they conduct themselves. He goes on and he says, while they behold your chaste conversation, again, that's manner of life. The word conversation means manner of life. Coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Now, the church has misinterpreted uh, a lot of scriptures over a lot of years. But I don't know of any that's more egregious than this one. There are church groups that still, certainly in times past, maybe more so in times past, but still today, say that women shouldn't wear makeup and they shouldn't wear jewelry and so forth. Well, if that's true, then why isn't all the verse true? Why should they wear clothes? Now, looking at that from the flip side, that might increase church attendance. <laughs> but probably not for the right reason. On the other hand, maybe not. <laughs> so Peter says, don't worry only about the outward appearance. He's not saying it's wrong to put on makeup or wear jewelry or clothes or whatever. He's just saying, don't make that the, the main focus. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. Now notice that phrase, the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. Well, we know what hidden means. Hidden means unseen. See, I don't see the real you when we interact here on the earth. I see the body you live in. But that's not the real you. And you don't see the real me. uh, Peter said, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. He identifies what the hidden man of the heart is. He identifies how we should adorn ourselves. Now, I, I personally, certainly this applies to marriage. Certainly it would apply specifically to Christian women married to unsaved husbands. And he said the qualities of that woman should reflect meekness and quietness. 
But folks, I don't believe it should just be limited to that. I think we should all be meek and quiet. I can't see why it would be of greater price in the sight of a greater value in the sight of God for it to be a woman in an unsaved marriage than it would be for you and me in, uh, in anything and everything we do. Meekness just means to be teachable. Quiet just means to be quiet. The Bible says a lot about being quiet. It says even a fool is mistaken for a wise man when he keeps his mouth shut. I've taken a lot of comfort in that scripture. <laughs> but again, the main point is that Paul, or I keep calling him Paul Peter, is telling us that the heart is the spirit of man. Now turn with me over to John chapter 20. I want you to see some things about this hidden man of the heart. I don't expect I'm teaching you anything new this morning. And if I'm not, that's fine with me. My job is not to have something new every day. But to steer you to what works. Um, Let's start in verse 19. This is following Jesus' death on the cross. It said, then the same day at evening being the first day of the week. When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled because of fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, peace be unto you as my father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, let's stop right there. We'll continue in just a moment, but let's stop there for a moment. When Jesus breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Ghost, if you'd been one of the group, would you have expected that he was doing something or communicating to you in a way that you were to receive something from him? It'd be kind of foolish for Jesus to breathe on him and say, receive the Holy Ghost and nothing happened. They would have had every right to look at Jesus afterwards and say, what did you do that for? Why? What happened? Notice what he tells them about the Holy Ghost that they are to receive or that they did receive when he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained unto them. Now, a lot of people look at that as the apostles had some kind of special power that we don't have to forgive sins. But that's not what retain and remit means. Sins are not retained or remitted because somebody breathes on you or somebody takes some special action towards you here on the earth. Your sins were forgiven, remitted literally, wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus is not affected by whether or not you like somebody or don't like them or remit their sins or don't remit their sins. We know that that takes place, salvation takes place, by receiving Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. So he, he's simply saying that the gospel that they've been commissioned to preach will bring forgiveness of sins. He's telling them that their preaching of the gospel will bring remission of sins. When people reject the gospel that they're to preach, then their sins will be retained. In other words, their sins won't be wiped away because it's faith of the heart. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But I want you to draw your attention to something else about this. He's saying receive the Holy Ghost when he breathes on the disciples and says receive the Holy Ghost. He's speaking of the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins, which is salvation. So he's telling them and telling us that there's a work of the Holy Ghost in salvation. But there's also another work of the Holy Ghost that comes afterwards. See, these same guys are the ones that he tells to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost was poured out, which we know happened on the day of Pentecost and is described in Acts chapter 2. Well, if he's already breathed on and said, receive the Holy Ghost concerning remission of sins or salvation, what's he telling them to wait in Jerusalem for for another outpouring of the Holy Ghost? Wouldn't make sense and doesn't make sense until you understand that there are two works of the Holy Ghost. The first is the work of the Holy Ghost in salvation. So you got church, many church groups and church organizations that say, well, I've got the fruit of the Spirit, so I have the Holy Ghost. And in a sense, they're right. But there are others in the church that say, well, there's a work of the Holy Ghost that saves you, but then there's another work of the Holy Ghost to fill you like he demonstrated with the apostles. And they're right too. There's two works of the Holy Ghost, one in salvation or the remission of sins, and the second for service that comes on us by the baptism of the filling, infilling of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, but Thomas was one of the twelve. He's called Didymus, and he was not with them when Jesus came. Then the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, Jesus was, or his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came the doors being shut and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be unto you. Then said Jesus to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus answered him back and said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. Now let's draw your attention to a couple of things here. Thomas, who was not with the group when Jesus first appeared to him, would not accept the teaching or the, the preaching, the declaration. I don't know which word to use here. He didn't believe the other apostles when they said Jesus is still alive. He's been raised from the dead. Thomas says he will not believe. He doesn't say he can't believe. He says he will not believe. It's a choice. It's a determination. He says, I'm not going to believe until I see him. Now, I don't know if Thomas expected that Jesus would appear again and he would see him or if he's just rolling the dice and saying, that's it, I'm not going to believe this no matter what. And if Jesus hadn't appeared to him again the second time, then he would have lived his life out here on the earth in whatever manner he did and missed heaven and found himself in hell for eternity. And notice it was because of his choice. Now, you know as well as I do that Jesus didn't intend to lose any of his disciples. One of his prayers to the Father before he went to the cross is, I haven't lost any of those that you gave me except the son of perdition that prophecy might be fulfilled. He's saying Judas is the only one that I've lost, and that was going to happen because you prophesied that and said that ahead of time. There had to be a betrayal take place in one of 
the group. So Jesus certainly didn't want to lose Thomas. But notice what he had to do to get him. He had to appear unto him. Let Thomas see with his physical eye. Let Thomas feel with his physical hands. And notice that Jesus calls that condition, that position, a condition of being faithless with the heart man believes. Thomas wouldn't believe. He refused. He said, I will not believe unless I can see him and touch him. Notice what Jesus says after Thomas finally accepts that he is alive. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Now, is there a blessing associated with seeing and believing? No. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. So if the condition of being faithless means having to see before you believe, then the condition of faith or believing with the heart has to be believing without seeing. There's no other way you could divide it. So believing with the heart, therefore, has to be defined, or at least a part of the definition of it, has to be to believe without physical evidence. That's the kind of faith that accesses the things of God. Now, we've got other examples in the Bible about this. In Numbers chapter 13, it tells us about the 12 spies that were commissioned by Moses to go into the promised land. They all came back with the same report of what they saw. They saw fruit that was more abundant than any place they'd ever been. They said, it is a land filled with milk and honey, just like God had told us through Moses. But 10 of them said, we can't take the land because of the cities that have walls around them and because of the strength of the people. Caleb and Joshua, the other two, said we can take it because God says it's ours. You know as well as I do that the the people believe the majority report. And so they wept. They considered themselves doomed and they put themselves in a position where their words came to pass. They died in the wilderness over the next 40 years as Israel wandered around. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map of that part of the world. But for seven to nine million people to stay lost for 40 years in that small a place was a great miracle of God. But that's the way it worked. What happened there? Well, the majority of them, 10 of the 12, were going by what they saw and what they felt about what they saw. Two of them who saw the same cities, who saw the same walls around Jericho and maybe other cities as well, who saw the same strength or condition of the people that they'd have to dispossess to take hold of the land. They saw exactly the same thing, but they came to two different, uh, uh, two different positions or conclusions, completely opposite from one another. The majority report said we can't do it because of what we saw. We saw them and their strength, and we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in comparison to them. The other two saw exactly the same thing, but they came to an opposite conclusion. They said, we can do it because God said it's ours. They saw something different. They saw something different. The, the Christmas hymn, I don't know what the name of it is, but that we sing every year and it says, do you see what I see? Do you hear what I hear? That ought to be an anthem for faith because it's all about what you see. With the heart, man believeth. That means to see something beyond the physical realm. 
It has to. Thomas refused to believe anything beyond the physical realm. And he lucked out because Jesus provided it to him. But Jesus said that the blessing belongs to those who haven't seen. Maybe we should say it this way. The blessing belongs to those who see something more. They see something more. Caleb and Joshua saw something more. What was the basis for what they saw? Well, they said it was God's word. They said, God's with us. He told us this land is ours. Don't rebel against him. We can do this. They saw something more. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. As much as there are examples, several examples of people being faithless or refusing to believe with their heart because they're wanting to believe only in what they can see and feel. The Bible tells us that Abraham, who is the father of faith, believed in a different way, and his kind of faith is what we should follow as an example, what we should emulate. Now, I want you to look closely here at what Abraham had to see. Verse four, uh, Romans 4, verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, talking about Abraham, even God who quickens the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, there are, um, there are several other translations of this verse that I like a lot better. Here where it says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of nations before him who he believed. The word before literally means like unto. In other words, this verse of scripture is saying that Abraham imitated God. Abraham acted like God in this situation. And it identifies two things. The quickening power of God and the way that God calls things that are not as though they were. The Bible is saying Abraham did both of those two things in his situation. He was like unto God in those two respects. Now the first one, the first condition is kind of tough. Because only God has power to bring life back to the dead. Or so we think. But Abraham did something in emulating God, imitating God, acting like God, operating in the God kind of faith. Abraham did something that brought life back to his body. Now certainly it was the power of God that did it and not his own power. But without his participation, without his actions, even though God wanted it to happen, it couldn't have taken place. When Abraham began to call things that be not as though they were, when Abraham began to call himself the father of many nations, when Abraham began to say what God said about him, it brought life back to his body and enabled him and Sarah to have a child. I can prove it to you. In James chapter 3, James talks about the power of the tongue. And he said, if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. Well, that's what Abraham did. Abraham, by beginning to say what God said about him, by beginning to confess that the promise of children was his, he spoke life back into his body. 
Well, that sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 23 that we read earlier. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. That's what Abraham began to do. Now, whether or not he understood the, the nuts and bolts about it, I don't have a clue. Whether he understood what he was doing and the reason why he was doing it and the value it would bring, I have no clue. But he did what he saw God do. He realized that God called him, Abraham, the father of many nations before he ever had a child. Now, I'm sure he came up on the same thoughts that come, that come to us. The stumbling block that causes most Christians to reject the operation of faith other than just being saved. I know it's certainly true in my experience and I expect it is in yours as well. That the devil comes to you and tries to tell you that you're lying when you say something that is refuted by physical evidence. And that's where most people miss it. It's not in their believing that they miss it. They believe God told the truth. They believe the word of God or the Bible is the word of God. But they miss it because they're unwilling to say things about their lives, their situations, their bodies, whatever the case is. They refuse to speak to the situation hoping that God will change it on his own. And the Bible says that Jesus is the high priest of our profession. In other words, without you giving voice to what the word of God says about you and about your situation in the middle of the condition that you're in, without you giving voice to what the Bible says and reveals to us that God has planned for us, Jesus doesn't have anything to work with. He's the high priest of your confession, not the high priest of what you want, not the high priest of your thoughts, not the high priest of your hopes. He's the high priest of your profession. Your words are the only thing he has to work with. And so many times, I've fallen into this trap several times myself, so many times people are talking to God about their situation instead of speaking to the problem. And talking to God about your situation doesn't change it. But you speaking to the issue, to the mountain, to the circumstance, to the sickness, to the poverty, whatever it is that you're in the middle of, you speaking to the condition you're in, to the problem itself, puts the power of God to work. So here of Abraham, it says that he imitated God in this manner through his words and his efforts to call those things which be not as though they were, it quickened his body. It speaks further about Abraham's situation his circumstance it says who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken according to that which was spoken without any natural evidence without any natural circumstance or situation to hope in he believed and spoke according to what God had said according to that which was spoken And being not weak in faith, he considered his own body now dead. He considered not, excuse me, his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. And he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, 
but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. It tells us what Abraham looked at. Now, compare this with Thomas and the multitude in Numbers chapter 13. They spoke, Thomas and the Jews in Numbers 13, they spoke according to what they heard relative to physical conditions or circumstances. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see or feel. Israel said, well, the majority report says we can't do it because of the walls around the cities and the strength of the people. So they're speaking and taking sides with the circumstances against what God had said. Thomas took sides against the truth by saying, I won't believe unless I can see it and feel it. Abraham on the other side had just as much or more impossible the situation facing him than the than Israel did in Numbers chapter 13. It says specifically he had no physical evidence to hope in. He had no physical evidence to base his hope upon. But the question is, do you see what I see? What did he see? Well, he saw the promise of God that said, your seed will be like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. So what did he do? Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. In other words, he chose and he determined to operate out of his spirit, operate according to things he could not see instead of things that he could. His words, his words, Abraham's words, changed the condition in his body. Now, certainly, again, we know it was the power of God that did it. But just like in Mark chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, 25 through 34, it tells us about the woman with the issue of blood. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind her. She said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. She winds up fighting through the crowd and touching the hem of his garment. And Jesus knows that power went out of him and into her. So he stops to find out who did it. She finally identifies herself, tells, her, tells him the situation and all the things that she's dealt with for the last 12 years of this sickness that she had, this issue of blood. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 5, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Or we could use it this way for the sake of uh, understanding. Believing with your heart has made you whole. Now, we already know the power of God did it. We know the power of God went out of Jesus and into her and affected a healing and a cure in her body. But Jesus credits her faith. Because your faith is what activated the power. Same thing had to be true for Abraham. It was Abraham's faith. It was Abraham's confession that he was the father of nations. That activated the power of God to to change his body. And to bring life back into him and to Sarah. It's all believing with the heart. And believing with the heart comes down to what do you seek? What do you see? Do you just see the circumstances? Do you just see the doctor's report or doctor's diagnosis? Do you just see the balance of your bank book, your checkbook? Or do you see something more? Abraham saw something more. The faith that we're supposed to use as an example saw something more. 
it saw something more. What do you see? What do you see about these last days? A lot of people are running around seeing earthquakes and hurricanes and saying, that's it, time's up. What do you see? I see a glorious church. I see the power of God on display. Now, why do, you, why do I see that? Is it because I see evidence? Do I see things moving in that direction? No, not really. I believe it because it's what God said would be. I've been in ministry, full-time ministry for 35, more than 35 years. 31 of them here pastoring the church. And you do anything that long and you're going to learn a little bit. I've outlasted all the people that said we wouldn't make it. We've done a lot of things that nobody said would, we would be able to do. All the, uh, the pastors that were part of the fellowship, pastors group fellowship, whatever it is, I don't even know if they still have it, but they used to have it in this area. All of those guys that said that the Word of Faith Church can't make it here are gone. And we're still here. And in, to be honest with you folks, I feel like we're just getting started. Well, I've learned something in those 35 years. I've learned that the same wrong doctrines, the same wrong ideas kind of run a cycle and, they, and then they reappear some 15, 20 years later. I've seen teachings about demons and devils and so forth arise. I've seen home groups, home churches, that whole concept come around several times, seems to be coming around again. And there's one thing that I've learned. Well, among the things that I've learned, here's one thing. You know, the Bible tells us that there are a lot of similarities between natural growth and, and spiritual growth. Naturally, kids are great. They take everything at face value. They don't try to think things through. They know they can trust mom and dad. And they're happy to do anything that's in front of them because every, every day is an adventure for them, you know. Teenagers, not so much. One of the differences between kids and teenagers is that kids aren't trying to prove how smart they are. And teenagers are struggling to be adults. I don't know why. I, I, I did it too. But to you teenagers, let me give you a word of advice. Enjoy where you are. Because where you are is where a lot of the adults wish they could go back to being. But it's never that way. Adolescents and teens, man, they know best. They've got it figured out. And whatever mom and dad are doing is the stupidest thing you could do for the stupidest way you could do it. Well, here's the spiritual application. I've found that by and large, those who really haven't done much for God, they don't have much life experience in working with God and serving Him, are the ones that want to tell us about what God's doing today. They're the ones. Because they've got all the answers. Everybody else may be wrong, but they've got it. I see a lot of that happening today spiritually. I see a lot of things being pushed and promoted 
There's supposed to be some new thing that's going to carry us over and make make it all different. I was listening a couple of days ago to some preaching on YouTube or something. Well, I should say Beth was listening and I was in the room. She'll turn up her phone to the highest setting and then complain if I'm listening to something on my headphones. But anyway, that's not always true. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I heard some of the people that are supposed to be the with it people now. That must have gone on for about 15 minutes. It wasn't, wasn't a terribly long period of time. I don't think I could have stood a terribly long period of time. <laughs> but it was all about buzzwords and catchphrases. And after listening for about 15 minutes, whatever the time length of the message was, I'm sitting there amazed because there wasn't hardly any scripture used whatsoever. There may have been something referred to, but nobody used any scripture about it. And, um, and this was a, a going big mega church type situation. And I couldn't help but think back to what Brother Hagin told us about the healing revival days. The healing revival that lasted from 1947 to about 57, 58, somewhere around there. Brother Hagin was a virtual unknown in that group. He was certainly a small fish. And he saw what was going on with the healing revival. Now, he's told us things about it that, uh, from an insider's point of view, he said that those were days where healing was what God was doing in such a degree that it didn't matter if you had a ministry call, didn't matter if there was a, a great anointing on you. He said, told us about one situation where he had a, a couple that would go with him and do kind of the platform work, the announcements and that kind of stuff, tell people about the book tables and whatever else, uh, whatever other announcements they needed to make. And then they'd lead the congregation in singing. She played, he sang. And he said, that's all they ever had. They were good at what they did, but that's all of what they, the only thing they ever had. They never had a great call to the ministry or anything like that. But when the healing revival began, in the early days of the healing revival, there was such a move of God for people to be healed. Brother Hagin said it was the easiest thing in the world to get people healed back then. The level of faith that was required was negligible. He said we recognize, or he did at least, he recognized that it was just the way the Holy Ghost was going. He said this couple that, that never did anything more than platform work and just lead in congregational singing, he said they went out and they started having healing miracles like crazy. He said it would work for anybody during that time because that's just the way the Holy Ghost was going. And so he'd go to these Voice of Healing conventions where all these great healing revivalists were. He said that everybody except Oral Roberts was part of the group. And so that would be the group that he was addressing. And he told them all during a time of roundtable discussion or whatever, he told every one of them, he said, when you guys are gone, I'll still be here. Now, for somebody of his stature, Speaking to people of 
greater stature that God was using in these healing miracles and, and so forth. To say that just blew the room away. And Brother Hagin explained, he said, every one of you guys are basing your ministry on, on spiritual gifts. That's all you do. You don't preach the word. You don't teach the word to any great degree. You just get out there and do whatever God has called for you to do. He wasn't complaining about what, how God was using them. But he recognized. He said, this is not happening because you're preaching the word. This is happening because this is how God is using you for the time being. But he won't always work that way. He won't always move in that manner. He said, when the miracles stop, you've got nothing to fall back on. You've got nothing to base your ministries on. Your ministries will wither and and disappear. He said, but I'm basing my ministry on the word. And the word never changes. The word never fails. Well, I feel a lot the same way. Because it's, it's the... Well, it's always been the place that had signs and wonders and miracles that drew everybody's attention. That's nothing new. But one thing that I found in 35 years of public ministry... One thing that I found is that when people are used by God in a certain way, might be healing, might be miracles, might be something else. When God starts using them in the way that, that, that he does, and the results are magnified, the people that are being used in that way think that everybody else is supposed to do the same thing. And so they suck a lot of people in by their wake. It draws a lot of people in. They want the same crowds. They want the same results. And they think all they have to do is do the same stuff that they do. Which translates a lot in this day to catchwords and buzz phrases. I said that wrong, didn't I? Buzzwords and catchphrases. There we go. You can tell how hip I am. So a lot of people are being caught up in that. And aren't getting the same results because it's not what God has for them. But the word never changes. The word never changes. Believing in the heart is going to be the same now as it always has been. People are starting to say, well, God's doing a new thing in this new day. He's not. It's the same old things that work. It's the same old things that will always work. But people get caught up in this stuff. And, and in, in situations like I'm in, People just look and see what I'm saying or hear what I have to say, and they just say, well, that's sour grapes. He's just upset because God's not using him that way. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't want something that's not based on the word. If God tried to do something that wasn't based on the word or I didn't have an explanation for it, I'd find one from the scripture because the word never fails. So what do you see in these last days? I see a lot of people being pulled away from places where they're being taught, going for excitement. And folks, please understand, the devil wants nothing more than to take you away from ministry gifts that are designed to perfect you or mature you. That's what a lot of this home church stuff does. Now, I make a, a very clear distinction between a church that's called of God to start in a home and this home church stuff. Most of the home church stuff is just an invitation for people to come and use their gifts rather than be influenced by a ministry gift. 
I think it's interesting that Jesus talked about deception being a major issue in the last days. There are two things, two institutions that God has established. One was the family and the second was the church. That's it. And by the church, I don't mean denominations. I mean the family of God. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. That's what I'm talking about. As far as the family is concerned, God identified the laws of the family through the institution of marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. They shall be one. Now notice the stuff that's happening and getting into the church relative to those two issues. Marriage and family first. How the church operates second. I've seen this home church stuff come and go a couple of times. Used to be cell churches. And there are some people that have made it work, especially some people in in foreign countries. That have made it work to a great, 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 great degree. But in America, it's just pretty much being pulled away from somebody that's called of God to start a work, to sit in a home fellowship where everybody can do their thing, operate according to their gifts, their, what they have to offer, and so forth. I'm of the opinion, this is just my opinion, I'm of the opinion that God is really not that interested in what I've got. Because whatever I've got, he gave me. So why should I try to impress him with what I've got? I'd rather be in a situation where I can grow. In an environment where I can grow. Not perform, but grow. And that's what a lot of this home church stuff does. It pulls you away from people that we assume are called and anointed of God to do the work they're doing in the, the, the mainstream of church. To people that have no ministry gifts and no ministry calls whatsoever. So this stuff comes and this stuff goes. But it still comes down to the same thing for you and me. What do you see? What do you see about the last days? Folks, everybody's talking about this being the last days. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the world. The world, the unsaved are starting to wonder how long the earth can survive. We're in the last days. What do you see? What do you see? See, what you see, whether it goes beyond just physical circumstances of things around us or not, what you see determines everything about what you'll believe and what you'll stand for and what you'll confess. And those are the things that control your life. What you believe, what you speak, and what you see. The Bible tells us to see like Abraham saw. To see like Abraham saw. Let me give you one final scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me start in verse 13. Paul said, wherefore... We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Believing and speaking was the center of everything Paul's revelation brought to us. And he says it's the same spirit of faith. Now, the same spirit of faith doesn't mean we've got the same spirit of faith between you and me. 
even though that's true. The same spirit of faith that he's talking about is we've got the same spirit of faith as God himself. This is the God kind of faith. We have believed and therefore have we spoken. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause? Knowing who we are, knowing what we have, knowing the the value, the benefit of believing and speaking the word of God. For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, there's decaying, getting older. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Here Paul is calling your spirit the inward man. For our light affliction, verse 17, for our light affliction, test trials, troubles here on the earth. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, the Bible is real clear that we're not going to escape trouble and persecution and difficulties here on the earth. Adversity is just a part of life. But Paul is talking about something that enables our experiences, the tests, trials, and troubles, the adversities that we experience here on the earth to work in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, I'll be the first one to say that not every one of my experiences has had that effect because I didn't handle them right. I'm sure many of you could agree with me on that. But Paul is talking about something specific that enables the trials and tests and difficulties of life to produce an eternal glorious result in us. See, if we just stop at the end of this verse, then we'd have to conclude like so many other Christians believe that, well, things are going to be however they're going to be. God's in control and whatever happens, it'll work to our advantage. That's just stupid. If God was in control of everything, then why would he expect us to have faith? What's the point? But instead, the Bible says it's through faith we access and take hold of the things of God and the things that Jesus provided for us through his sacrifice. So Paul is talking about conducting ourselves the way we handle ourselves in the middle of conflict, in the middle of adversity, that makes all the difference. So let me read that again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while, in other words, here's what you do. Here's how you make your experiences work to your advantage. While we look not at the things which are seen in the physical realm, but at the things which are not seen, the things that God's word promises and reveals. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The word temporal means subject to change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. I've got a final question for you. What makes the things that are seen, all the physical circumstances around us, everything about this physical realm, what makes those things subject to change? There's only one thing that the Bible says changes circumstances, and that's faith. Believing in the heart. Apart from and separated from everything that you see and feel, believing according to what the Bible says is ours. That's the only thing that the Bible says in any way whatsoever will change circumstances. So Paul is saying, if we put these things together, Paul is saying very clearly, in my thinking anyway, in my view, he's saying 
the trouble that we experience down here on this earth, don't let that shake you. It's common. It works this way. Everybody has to deal with it. Because we have the same spirit of faith as God who created the worlds by words. We have the same spirit of faith. And these experiences, these troubles, these difficulties that we have here on the earth, as unpleasant as they are, won't last forever. And they can work in us spiritual growth and development and maturity. While we look at the right things. While we look at the things that the word promises. While we look at the word just like Abraham looked at the word. And not at the circumstances themselves. That's what that same spirit of faith is for folks. That's why God deposited in us the measure of faith. That is up to us to grow and develop. Because he wanted us. To learn that stuff on here on this earth. Circumstances, afflictions, troubles, difficulties here on this earth are subject to the word of God in our mouths. And that's all they are subject to. It doesn't matter how much the devil wants you to have trouble. Your words determine your own experience. The Bible never says we can keep trouble away from us, but it sure tells us we can conquer every bit of it. What do you see? What do you see? I see the word. I see the blessings of God. Ephesians 1, 3 says that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That means everything that we ever need, every good thing is available to us simply by believing and acting on and speaking God's word. And that's true for every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us. We thank you, Father, that you've made a way of escape for every problem, every difficulty, everything the devil throws our way. So we declare the victory is ours. You said, Father, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Believing with our heart, believing with our spirit, man. Speaking according to your word and not according to the circumstances. You said that's our means of victory. And that victory's already been won. Jesus has already risen from the dead. So we choose, we elect, we determine to speak your word and only your word. We choose to look at what your word says and not just at the circumstances of life. We choose to believe that you're coming for a glorious church. We choose to believe your word that the glory of the latter-day church will be greater than the former. We choose to believe for healing miracles and signs and wonders to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe because you said it. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will never fail, Father. We believe you. We believe you. So we declare we are victorious. We declare we're more than conquerors through you because of the love that you have for us. We declare that our needs are met. We're abundantly supplied for. We're healed by the stripes of Jesus. Body, we call you well in Jesus' name. Finances, we call you abundant in Jesus' name. Peace, we call you to us 
in the name of Jesus. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for growing us in these last days. Let us walk worthy of you and all-pleasing, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into all truth, guiding us into the truth of your plan for our lives, guiding us into the truth of healing and well-being. We thank you for guiding us into all reality concerning God's plan and purpose for these last days. We count it done, Father, because your word says so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's just lift our hands for just a moment and thank God for his goodness. Thank him for his word. It never fails, never comes to an end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but that which we are to build our lives on, the word of God, shall never fail. We love you, Father, and we thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for having a great day, and you're dismissed.